and welcome to More Than Tracy Turnblad, the podcast about fat representation in entertainment. My name is Abby Rose Morris, and this is part two of our season finale episode with Katrina Rose. I highly recommend listening to part one before this because we're about to jump in mid-conversation, but Katrina spills the tea about Bear being on The Voice and a whole bunch of other crazy stories in part two. Now, like part one, this episode does contain discussions of eating disorder behaviors, naming of those behaviors could definitely be potentially triggering. So please keep that in mind moving forward. So this is the last episode of season one. I will be back with season two sometime in mid to late August. And in order to make season two possible, we are launching a GoFundMe fundraising campaign to cover all the podcast expenses for season two and to make this a little bit more manageable for me in terms of workload. So I'm going to break that down for you exactly what that entails. I want to have enough money to pay for our hosting platform, Buzzsprout, uh, from now until the end of season two. I want to also be able to pay for my Canva Pro subscription, which is what I use to make all the Instagram graphics and TikTok graphics. And I also want to be able to pay somebody to help me out with social media, you know, just like a one hour a week kind of deal. So I am looking for a person to help me with this. If you want to be this person and work for me for one hour a week and help me to post on Instagram without losing my mind and also let me uh, bounce ideas for TikToks and Reels off of you, uh, let me know. I'm going to be posting more about this on our social media and more about this fundraiser. So please follow More Than Tracy T on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And uh, let's make this thing happen. I'm super excited. I really want to make this podcast as easy and sustainable as possible going forward so I can make sure that I'm able to keep doing it. So Buzzsprout subscription, Canva Pro, all taken care of and paid for for season two and to have someone to help me with social media is going to be a godsend and it's going to make it so much easier for episodes to get out to you. And then the final thing this money would go towards is compensating either myself or another editor to help me out with podcast editing because I do it all myself right now, like completely one woman operation. And uh, I would really like to either spend fewer hours on it and outsource some of it or to be paid for the time that I put into it. So with all that in mind, the goal is $750. I'm going to have some perks for people who donate in certain amounts. So here's what it is. If you donate $25, you get a shout out on social media and in the podcast season two. If you donate $50, you get to submit uh, something to be read on the podcast. Um, please be appropriate. Please don't be mean. <laughs> but you can submit uh, like a little paragraph or something and I will also share it on social media as well. And then if you donate $100, you get to come be on a bonus episode of the pod. So uh, if that sounds good to you, the link is in the description of this episode and will soon be in link trees on all of our social media platforms. Now that all that business is out of the way, I think we're just going to jump straight into part two of my interview with Katrina Rose. But before we do, I just want to say that it has been so amazing to do this podcast and finally make it happen and to see people respond to it and DM me and tell me about your experiences and uh, tell me what fat representation means to you. It's made me feel so much less than I'm like screaming into a vacuum, screaming into a void. Because before I started this podcast, like I was so afraid to talk about any of this stuff. I just thought it was going to invite like the most criticism and shaming and like fat phobic comments. And I just didn't think I could handle it. But now when I get negative comments, I'm like, oh, well, that's like, that's one person's opinion. And and I feel like I've seen this resonate with enough people and I've had enough like great conversations with guests on here to really feel like I'm not crazy and I'm not alone in believing that fat people in the arts deserve so much better. And it's really just given me this really amazing sense of community too. And like, I've met so many cool people and made new internet friends. And uh, it's been an amazing way to keep me grounded and sane and uh, connected during this pandemic. And coming from how I felt before, where it was like, I felt like no one in my life was going to understand 
And I somehow felt like it was a shameful secret when I was reading about like fat liberation and, you know, kind of like deep in Twitter threads about this. And so to like come out publicly with it and to meet so many other people who are also there has been incredible. Like not only has it been like exciting on a level of like, oh, like, you know, many people are on board to change this, but I just also feel like less lonely in it. So thank you guys. Thank you everyone who's listened and especially to every guest and everyone who has reached out to me and just all of you. I, you're all amazing. I love you. This podcast has been so good for me. Season one's been amazing and I cannot wait for season two. But for now, here is the very last little bit of season one, my interview with Katrina Rose. Okay, so can we talk about Bear? Let's talk about Bear. I'm so curious. Okay, so so the tea. Yeah, so for any listeners who aren't familiar with Bear, there's a musical called Bear Pop Opera where there's a fat character called Nadia. She's kind of a supporting character and she's very um, sort of angry and jaded, uh, which I love because fat characters like never get to be that smart. Usually they're just too stupid to realize what's going on or they're just like sad. Um, but I think she's unlike any other fat character in musical theater canon and I love her. And then they, they, you know, sort of reworked Bear to be Bear the Musical and Nadia's entire character changed no longer about her size. She's now like a, she like deals drugs in the Bear the Musical. It's my fault. Tell me. (laughs) So, um, so Bear was during this, uh, this awkward time where I was still considered too fat to be um, the ingenue, but too skinny to be the fat girl. And I had worked with um, a couple of the people involved with Bear. And I think that's how I got pulled in because I can't even remember if I auditioned for the workshop. I don't think I did. Um, And when I came into it, they still were working with the old script. It was still – all the same stuff, but they were, they went into it really wanting to rework it because it had failed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they were definitely trying to find something to make it new and improved. And, um, I remember actually not like we were starting, we were doing just read throughs at the beginning. And, um, it wasn't even the creatives that I was hearing anything from, but, um, uh, Gerard, um, was playing opposite me and, uh, I had known him ish from a couple other things that I'd done. And he was like, um, you're really not big enough for this anymore. And I was like, don't tell them that. Like I got a job, dude, like (laughs) just be quiet. And then there was this one day in rehearsal where they took, um, they took me into a room and it was, uh, me and the director and, um, a couple of the writers and they were like, um, let's just talk about Nadia. Let's talk about her character. Let's talk about, and at this point there was a little bit of nervousness of, Oh God, are, are they going to fire me? Are they going to replace me? Like, so I wanted to be clear that although I may not look like the original Nadia picture, this was my whole history. This was my yeah. whole background. I could relate to her 110%. And um, so we started talking about it. We started talking about my history. I, mm-hmm. I was like, they were like, let's, let's, let's talk about your story. Let's talk about your story. And I told them all about my disordered eating, which I actually was in the middle of. So I think I even was like playing it, like not really believing that I had it, which was hilarious. <laughs> But like just talking about how, you know, I had always been ridiculed, how I'd been bullied growing up, how, um, you know, even starting out in the business, how I'd been considered too big to be a fat girl, like all these things. And I see them furiously writing. I see them like going on and on, like looking at it all. Now, I will not say that the Nadia that ended up is exactly me. I was never a drug dealer. (laughs) (laughs) I think they just were trying to find a way to make her still 
fit into the story with this other stuff going on. Yeah. But they used my story. Like every day we were coming into new pages that were literally things that I had said to them, like pieces of what I'd been through, like all of this stuff. Now, during that workshop, um, the song that she ended up singing, which I only know of because, again, I never actually saw the remake. And um, I only know that she had a new song because I had to audition for (laughs) the show uh, when, yeah. it got, when it was moving on. So that song didn't exist, but a lot of my story was in there. And basically I was the reason. <laughs> so they just wrote it in as like, she had, you know, she had all these issues, but she's no longer fat. Um, and then they replaced me with Barrett Weed. Wow. But it's, and I asked Gerard, cause I, again, I never saw, I never saw it. And so I was like, Gerard, did they really change the character after the workshop? And he was like, I mean, she just became the drug dealer, but all of the stuff that was in there is in there. And I was like, so my story. And he was like, "Mm mm-hmm. Wow. But I was replaced. Barrett followed me uh, to a couple things. (laughs) I got (laughs) – once I got skinnier, um, there were many times where – it was like I would do workshops or readings and then they'd bring Barrett in. Yeah, put in the same <laughs> box. <laughs> Which is so funny because I never would have considered us similar at all, but mm-hmm. I guess vocally. Or like I guess like kind of edgy, like rocker chick energy. I don't know. Which I also think is something – like yes, that is definitely part of me, but I definitely feel like I leaned harder into that when you're searching to be – it's so messed up because it's what I literally try not to do now. Like my whole thing when I was on The Voice was no box. Live your life like there's no box. Um, and yet it's so drilled into your – or it used to be drilled into our brains of find your box. What – you know, like no – Your box will employ you. Yeah. Know what roles are yours. Know your lane. Stay in your lane, you know. All the time for music theater. And so when I physically didn't fit in anything, I was so desperate to make a point of, okay, this is how you can pin me down. Let me. So I think I leaned really hard into that edgier rock and roll. And I love singing that stuff. and And I do it like, I'm not saying that I. That it, that's not part of me, but mm-hmm. to say that that is the entirety is yeah. very misleading. Um, but it was easier to say rebel, angry, rock and roll. Yeah. Then is she the fat girl? Is she funny? Right, is right. She, is she cute? Is she young? Is she? Yeah. <laughs> There's a um, lot there. There are just so many question marks that I just was like, okay, this. How about this for yeah. God's sake? Yeah. I would love to talk about um, more of your like music career and yeah. your, your time in The Voice. So can you tell me about that, like how you, how you started getting more into music? Yeah. So um, honestly <laughs> – it, I think it came out of the fact that like I just was having such a dry spell in um, in the business and I I really was after it right after waitress I was literally gonna walk out and just be like I, I remember calling my parents and being like I think I think the time has come I gotta throw in the ca- towel I think I gotta leave New York I, I just don't know what I'm doing here anymore and um I remember them like really trying to pep talk me up and being like, no, you're supposed to be doing this. I just felt like I was letting everybody down. And then um, at this point, I had auditioned for American Idol like a ways before this. Mm -hmm. Um, And I decided to go to a voice audition just to see. I I was doing nothing. So it was just one of those like, what the hell? Um, mm-hmm. It was at the Javits Center. It was easy to get to, unlike the American Idol one, which I think was in Jersey, for God's sake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I went and they treated us like people. Like, even though there were a million people there, 
you were taken in small groups into a private room. You got to sing one-on-one. It was quiet enough. They definitely heard you, you know, like who knew if this person was anybody important that was listening to you, but you felt like you were being listened to, to at least some degree. And that first time that I went in, I didn't get any further than that. But it was also, New York was like the last city they were at. And I remember like the girl who was like listening to me was definitely like taking a lot of notes and looking at a list of some sort. And I was like, I feel like by this point in the audition process, they have box. I mean, it's still reality television. So they have boxes they're trying to fill. And God knows if you're the last city, the idea that they're going to have any room (laughs) unless you're like super unique, super out of the box, which as much as I like to think I'm so (laughs) unique, like, listen, let's be real. So didn't get anything that time, but I got put in their roster. I went back again. Um, I got a few rounds further to the point that a casting director was actually emailing me about like, you're, you know, you'll hear something else, blah, blah, blah. Like Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I'm getting really far. Felt really good about it, but then didn't get it again. And then I got a call um, when season 13 was coming up. I got a call asking me to come and audition. And they were like, you're not going to go to an open call. You're going to skip all that. And you're going to come to the callbacks in New York. Um, So basically the last round that I had made it to previously. And I was like, cool. All right, sure. I'll do that. Um, And this was sort of sparking a little bit of hope back into it. Uh, At this point, I had just auditioned for um, the Women Rock Symphony with the Mm -hmm. Greenberg artists. And, um, had had a really good audition experience. Honestly, I think I had a really good audition experience because I walked into it going, fuck it. Like I had the biggest and not in a fuck this, but in a fuck it as in, listen, I run out of energy to be anything other than what I'm going to be. I have run out of space of trying to figure out what the hell you want from me or expect from me. And I just don't have the energy for it anymore. So I'm going to come and I'm going to sing my tits off the way that I do. I'm not going to try to – I don't know what you're looking for. It was one of those like really ambiguous things of like, what the hell are you looking for? Mm -hmm. Um, I had just come off – I had come off the road of doing Janice – So, um, which was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I used to say, oh, I proved myself doing Tracy Turnblad 10 times a week. No, I proved myself doing Janice ever. And any person who has done that role, it's no, it's not shade to anybody else in the show, but it is basically a one woman show. Anyone who, who doesn't know this is Janice Joplin. We're talking about not Janice from Mean Girls. Yes, Janice Joplin, a night with Janice Joplin, mm-hmm. um, playing Janice Joplin. So there are other people in the show, obviously, and you need them for the show to go on. That's not what I mean by a one-woman show. I just mean one-woman show as in she never leaves the stage. She, The only time that she's not singing or talking is when one of the um, black singers is singing their little like snippet of a song for her to be remembering, but she's still on stage and very physically active. Um, all of the speaking is on monologues. There is no dialogue in the yeah. entire show. So there's it's like lady day. Yeah. There's nothing to go off of. Like you, the times that I went up were the scariest moments of my entire <laughs> life. Oh my God. Um, and you just sort of do a little spin around looking at the band, like, nobody's gonna help you you just kind of shrug and are like and they're just stuck in whatever they're playing and you have to give them something or they won't know to go on so you have to figure out some cue at least or how to get to a cue because otherwise you will sit in that vamp for life so and I mean that's not even touching on how just vocally 
demanding and emotionally demanding. Like for me, it was really important because Janis Joplin is a huge influence for me and her Mm -hmm. influences were a huge influence for me, which is how she became an influence for me. But uh, I mean, just to show you how not music theater I was, truthfully, I thought Summertime was a Janis Joplin song. And the first time that I heard it (laughs) sung um, from Porgy and Bess in true Porgy and Bess fashion, I was so angry because I thought this person was doing like this horrible job of singing Summertime by Janis Joplin <laughs> only that's to be crazy. schooled by my mother being like, Katrina, that, that's from an operetta called Porgy and Bess. And I was like, no, it's Janis Joplin. I have it right here. And she was like, yes, she sang it because she heard Porgy and Bess. And I was like, I, I was so, <laughs> so mad. So that's like where my brain was. That's so, um, so I come from that and that – that I honestly I think doing Janice pushed me even further into really wanting to sing more with a band and doing more music driven stuff because yeah. as much as I love telling a story, um it, it's hard for me to find musicals that I connect with in the same way as I connect with the energy of just a live band and an audience. Yeah. And that was the joy of Janice because it really gave me both sides of that coin, um, which is why by the end of it, when I did the show, I was literally pouring sweat, emotionally wrung out, like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in so many ways. But um, it was this thrill. And when the show was on and when the band was like, when you were all clicked in, there was nothing better. So that really propelled me to just want to do more that was driven that way. Yeah. And I also think it's more forgiving in the sense of you're not beholden to be anything that other people are writing out for you. Right. Um, It's something that I always sort of leaned away from because I didn't know how to build that. Yeah. Which is, again, why Janice was such a great door because mm-hmm. – it was already built to an extent, but you still had to bring something of yourself. So that definitely pushed me into it. And then I did the audition for the symphony and this, and it was like a, fuck it. I've, I've just sung with this band and I feel really confident about my singing ability. And that's what you're going to get. I've never sung with a symphony in my life. I don't know how symphony shows work. I don't know if I'm supposed to banter. I don't know. You know, like they wanted us to like intro a song and I was like, I don't know what the hell to say. I also definitely had a little voice in my head being like, you at the symphony? Who's coming to see? At the time I had like half a shaved head and I was like, who is coming to see this little punk rock girl at the symphony? Like I just imagine like all these little old biddies coming for their like symphony subscription and being like, (laughs) who is this? So I was like, um. And they loved it. Like, they fully embraced me, loved it. I booked it. He told me after the fact, like, you had it as soon as you sang. Like, he was like, there was nobody else for that track in our eyes. And I was just like, thanks. That was Jeff. Um, So that was really cool. And then uh, the audition for The Voice was happening, like, sort of simultaneously. Wow. Speaking's hard. Um, <laughs> simultaneously uh, during that. And that was, again, a little bit of a, well, fuck it. Like, I I know that I don't have the most interesting story um, mm-hmm. for reality television. Like, listen, I've now spent God only knows how long talking about myself. But <laughs> so there's like everybody has a story, right? But reality TV is reality TV. And all of these shows still have to build storylines. Yeah. And that never bothered me super much from The Voice because, again, they were treating us like people. They were treating us like the voice still mattered. The actual voice um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. still mattered. And – uh yeah, I ended up getting that and had to be super hush-hush about it. So it was very like I was praying it wasn't going to conflict with the symphony shows that we already had booked. It luckily didn't. I was like kind of hopping around, um, going back and forth to L.A. Um, and it was a great experience, um, a hard experience. Like I still have moments of like, God, I should have done this. I should have done yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I think we all do. I put some hard lines in the sand about my story because I wanted 
I was willing to talk about anything about my story. But they early on were looking for other things I could tell. And I mentioned like um, I have a transgender stepbrother and I had mentioned him at one point and they were like, oh, that's really interesting. Like, so what did you, what does your family feel about that? And I was like, well, you know, that's not really my story. Like he's just my stepbrother. Like I can't sit here and tell his story and his story doesn't affect like me being in the business. Me Like it's a separate thing. And um, so I was kind of protective over those aspects. And I think they weren't ever mad about that. They didn't push it a lot. I just was like, you know, he's not like we talk, but we're not like super close just because he lives in Portland and I live in New York. And like, right. um, so once they realized that they weren't getting that kind of stuff from me, I was like, okay, all right, this isn't great. <laughs> this isn't going to be great for me, but whatever. Yeah. Um, but getting to work with the people that we did, I mean, you have the best makeup hair people ever in the world. You have some of the best people in music working with you. The band is insane. Um, they were amazing to work with and getting to meet Janice Freeman, who was on the Miley Cyrus team with me. And then I knew when my battle was up against Janice, I was like, Oh, they're trying to get rid of me real fast. <laughs> they were like, Oh, I think they thought that I would get more chairs turned because they kept telling me I was going to get a four chair turn. What does that mean? So the way the voice works, the first round is um, the judges, the four coaches, whoever they are that year, are in chairs that aren't facing the stage. And so you get a blind audition. Mm -hmm. And during your little like 60 seconds, 90 seconds, I can't remember how long it is, um, if somebody wants you, then they press the button. And the whole idea is that it's just based off your voice. There's still question as to whether – are these coaches fed anything? Are they told? I don't know. I, I don't speculate. I have no idea. From what yeah. we're told, they don't know nothing. They are doing it based on what they hear. Yeah. Um, and if you get a chair turn, then you're on somebody's team and you get to move on. If you get multiple chair turns, then you have to choose who you're going to be on. And the goal is to get as many chairs turned, obviously, because then that means that, like, everybody wants you and you get yeah, to pick yeah. your team and blah, blah, blah. Um, and in interviews, they'll sort of, like, ask – they're obviously, like, directing you towards certain coaches. At least they were for me, it felt like, during um, interviews previous to the blinds. But who knows? Uh, but all during my audition, my rehearsals and stuff, I was constantly being told you're going to be a four chair turn. You're going to be a four chair turn. But this is where I think that they don't know that the coaches don't really know. So I was, I was on the very first day of blind auditions and I was like number six of the day. So I was super early because there's a lot of people that audition out of those six, like four of them got four chair turns. Whoa. And I was like. Oh crap. I <laughs> like all of a sudden I was like, nobody's gonna turn. They've all like they're all spending their buttons. They're gonna be yeah. like, oh, well, we can't turn for a while because we keep turning. Mm -hmm. So I was terrified. And then when I went, like at the point in the song where I thought people would turn, nobody turned. And so I got really in my head and scared for a minute. And then I just was like, fuck it, you just gotta sing. Just sing. And um, Miley Cyrus turned. And she was the only person who turned. Um, it was hard for me because they gave me a Janice song. And at this point, it was hard for me to sing Janice songs without a little bit of Janice in it. Yeah. So I definitely don't feel like I sang 100% Katrina that first time, which I think was part of my detriment, but I also think a huge detriment was the fact that a bunch of chairs had already turned leading up to me. Mm -hmm. um, so then the next round is uh, your battle round where they pair you. This is how it used to be. They've already changed it now. But um, so there's a battle round where they pair you with somebody on your team and you go head to head. You sing yeah. a duet together. Um, and then your coach has to pick one of you to move on. 
And they paired me with Janice Freeman. And Janice Freeman, gorgeous black woman um, who literally has had everything thrown at her. She, when I tell you reality wants, right, reality TV wants that story, it's like pick a storyline. And she has lived it and she survived it. And um, sadly, she has passed on now. Um, but she was just one of the biggest lights I've ever met in my life. Uh, and truthfully was like one of the ways that held me together (laughs) during the next few weeks of this trial, which was the voice. Um, but when they paired me with her, I was like, oh yeah, they're trying to get rid of me hardcore. So I really went into those rehearsals just like neither of us ever looked at it as a battle. We never, they would always in interviews try to be like, well, how do you think you're going to sing better than, and I was like, we're not, we're not, we're going in as a team. We're going to go and do the best performance we could ever possibly do with a song so that everybody is like, holy hell, what did we just witness? Like, that is what we're going to do. Yeah. And Billy Ray Cyrus was obsessed with us. (laughs) He said he wanted to produce an album of us. Like, I mean, and it was from that where he, he was like, because I talked to him about how like it's been hard because I always feel like people try to put me in a box and they don't know where to put me. And this is where the no box came in because he was like, you know, you got to live your life like there is no box. And I was like, oh, my God, that's going to be the title of our album. And I've actually since written a song called No Box, which and it's it's all about this experience. It's like literally has like little things that people said, coaches said to me during it. I haven't released it because that's the person I am. I recorded it like three years ago. Um, and maybe I'll release it someday. If you do, uh, let me know. <laughs> I really want to, but I mean, yeah, I need to get my book together. Um, yeah. So then we went into that and Jennifer Hudson stole me because it was the best battle. Like they freaked out. They were like, this is the best battle we've ever seen. Um, I, I don't think you can look it up anymore. Actually, I think they pulled it down. So there might be some reaction videos so you can still see parts of it. But I think for whatever reason, when Janice passed, they pulled it down. Um, and then the next round, so I made it to the knockout rounds. And at that point, again, you're paired with somebody from whatever team you're on. And this time you sing your own song, but the coach has to pick between you and this other person. And on that round, I was paired with Chris Weaver, who his whole shtick was he was a preacher by day and a drag queen by night. Wow. So yet again, I was like, oh, we really done with me. They really were like, damn it, J-Hud. She's supposed to go home. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, needless to say, I did not fare well during that one. And Chris got chosen, which is fine. Uh, I still would say that The Voice was an amazing experience. I constantly think back on my knockout with Chris and just think like how I could have sung differently, how I could have done something better, what I could have talked about in my stories. But at the end of the day, it is what it is. Um, I would happily go back though. So the voice, (laughs) uh, if you ever want a call. Um, (laughs) (laughs) What an amazing experience. I highly recommend auditioning for it. Because even the audition process, again, you feel if you don't get any further than the open call, you still feel like you're being heard. It is a long day, but like you actually get to sing for somebody. And again, yes, your story is important, but your voice does matter as well. And you and you really get to work with some amazing people. So I constantly will say go out of all of them. If you're going to audition for something, that's the one I would do. So have you, did you ever experience any fat phobia in the music world? I mean, the hard part is that I'm not, <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm really in the music world as much as I would like to be um, in, in that vein. But I would also say that the fat phobia that lives within me has definitely been a huge part of not pursuing it more. Yeah. Um, now I see like Kelly Clarkson in her new body and I'm like, that feels more like me. So maybe there's a world, but she wasn't allowed to be that until she had already been something else yeah. and been approved of as something else. Um, and the same about like people get excited about Megan Trainer, but she was writing for people for years 
mm. and made a name for herself already. Like she was already somebody. Yeah. And although, and that's not to discredit any, because I'm sure that they have had issues. I think Megan has even talked about it when she said that she wanted to record her own stuff and people were being like, well, but look at you. So like, right. Absolutely. As they, I'm not trying to discredit the, any adversity that they've had, but they still had a starting off point already Yeah, that I feel like I don't get. So it's it definitely holds me back in that regard. Now, whether that's all in my head, I don't think it is, but um, – Can always be both. Yeah. And I think – I mean, there – and that's the hard part because, like, honestly, even if it's all in my head, it's it was put there for – yeah. By real experiences. By real experiences, by pre- real media you know. messaging. Like, exactly. That all happened. We don't exist in a vacuum. And that's why I hate when people are like, oh, just be more confident. Because it's like, but like, why, why do you think I'm not? You know, and both in the way that's like, maybe I'm more confident than you know, and you just assume I'm not confident because of the way my body looks and like, no one could ever be confident looking like this. But then it's also like, if my self-esteem is low, like consider why that might be because of the like messages that you receive subliminally and directly from the world. Right. And people like even people with the best intentions will still, because we've all been trained to a certain extent already, like even people with the best intentions will, could say something that for you at least affirms. Yes the fat phobia or affirms like people anytime people comment on your body. And I still have, I have to like stop myself a lot of times Mm -hmm. because it's just a natural thing taught early on of like first compliment, especially with women is like, Mm -hmm. Oh my God, you look so good. Even just saying that or, Oh, if you girl, you look snatched, you look like there's even ways of saying it now that don't feel like you're doing it, but you're still doing it. You look so confident. (laughs) Yeah. And not only that, but me, like as much as I, I try to like rein that in and make sure that I'm not doing that. I also still crave it from people. Yeah. And that is where I get really in my head about like how, how do I do the work of not craving it or not like even when people don't do it being like, they didn't say anything. Right. Like how do you digest from it? Yeah. And it's so hard. And that's something that I've really seen with disordered eating because Mm -hmm. I have really been working, especially recently, especially really, really working to try to break that cycle of generational issues. And part of that is really figuring out how, um, how, how to let go of my own stuff with it and also how to be, have a better relationship with food, how to have it. But something that I realize is a huge trigger for me now is seeing disordered eating or exercising in other people that are having quote unquote success. Yes. I feel the and exact being same praised way for it. And whether yes. they, and it's almost worse when they have, they don't think it's disordered at all. Yeah. And they're touting it. They're, they're oh, telling yeah. people they're about like, it's it. Easy. All you oh, have to do is yeah, stop do eating this. and exercise all the time. And then it's like, and like a little part of you goes like, why can't I just do that? It's so easy for them, you know? It's one of those where you get enough pe- people being like, oh, you should just do keto. You should just, mm-hmm. and it's like, no, do you not see how it's disordered? You don't see how that's disordered. Yeah. But you can't go down that road with people. So instead in your brain, you're like, no, no, it's disordered. You don't want to do it. But there's still right. that little part of you that's, that's like, like, oh, maybe they're right. They must be preaching it for a reason. Right. It mm-hmm. almost feels like until everybody agrees and it has to be everybody. It can't be just Mm -hmm. this little offset has to be. Everybody agrees. This is disordered and not okay. That I can't, I can't agree. I can't agree. Like it all, there's that little part of me that's like, I can't get fully on board. Right. And it's because you've seen so much in your life, you know? So like, as long as there's one person who's still on that train, there's and still there's gonna still be a nagging doubt. At least one little group that are saying, 
no, it's good. It's fine. It's healthy. And that, I mean, that still exists in my family too. So it's like, it's so, it's so hard to repair yourself and not be affected by that. But it's like, you can't not try once you, once you see it for what it is, you know? Right. And I was the same way. I mean, I literally got the shakes. I got the shakes. I, I had messed up periods. I, Mm -hmm. God only knows what I did to my body. Um, And I see it in other people and I want to just be like, no, that's disordered, my love. That is disordered. That is not sustainable and it is disordered and you are probably doing damage, but you can't. So now the struggle is like separating my relationships from whatever your relationships. Like if you want to continue living in that place and that – like I'm not even gonna say, oh, and if that works for you, because when people say that, it it annoys me mm-hmm. too. Because I'm like, it's not though. what is working, it's- you know? <laughs> exactly. So it's like, if that's if that's where you're at, you can be there, and I can still be here, and yeah. both of us can be okay where we are. Yep. I don't need to be okay with what you're doing to be okay with what I'm doing, and I don't need your approval of what I'm doing. Like it's yes, so. Hard. It's oh my god! So hard. You just put that in such a specific way that I don't think I've heard it put before, and that's like exactly where I am too. Where it's like I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing, and I've like on, I'm like on my own journey with all these things. But then I see other people, and I question everything, and like I have this horrible habit where I get wrapped up in like Twitter, like vegan versus keto discourse. Of course, I'm doing neither. I, I'm like out here eating meat and carbs at the same time for the first time in, since I was like 10. And, um, I'm, I like read the discourse and I'm like, you know, it's just, it's just like feeding that cycle. And, um, my therapist told me to stop doing it and I didn't, but I'm gonna one of these days. It's such a process. It's so hard because, and like I said, until the world gets on the same page and it's, you know, I, I love Demi Lovato. I love them. I love them so much, but they had a really questionable moment because they've gone through all this body stuff. And when they put the picture of the selfie and then saying, you know, I healed my relationship with food and have accidentally lost weight. Now we're putting it back on the weight. I think that does happen to people, but it's tricky to bill that as what will happen. And you can't do that because it's not guaranteed. But there's something to me that's inherently still not healed if you're needing to point it out to people. Yeah. If you're needing to make the statement of, oh my gosh, look how skinny I am. And they didn't say it just like that, but it was this sort of like mm. directorial moment of yeah. why are we drawing attention to that? Why yeah. not like post a selfie? Sure. And people are probably um, going to notice and say yeah, that. And if somebody says like, oh my God, you look so skinny. Like that's their opinion. That's caring whatever is going on in their head and whatever they deem appropriate. But to draw attention to it yourself, to me, like if I still need to do that and I do, yeah. I'm at that point where I do, so I will fully admit that. But I cannot in the same breath say that I have healed Yeah, because I'm still looking for this quote-unquote ideal body. Yeah. And that's not the goal of healing a relationship with food and healing a relationship with your body. The point totally, of yeah. – to me, the end goal is not even – really seeing a body if that makes sense like it's so interesting that you say that because I think that that is a place where I've gone to be like have my entire self-value not come from what I look like and come from everything else about me but then there are times where you get confronted with your body and so it's it's like am I trying to live in denial of it and like live despite it so that's like a a an issue that I've run into and then like I get into I get to a situation where like you know, someone comments on it or I see a picture of myself or like I walk by a mirror and I'm like, right. 
because Fuck, we still live in a cool world. person I thought I was because I look like this, you know, and like it's like the inner self versus outer self is completely like incongruent. As much as that's like the goal to me, I also like recognize again, it's it's sort of like the disordered eating. I don't think there's ever going to be a world, unfortunately, mm-hmm. that doesn't see bodies. Yeah. Doesn't doesn't compare automatically, doesn't, you know, size up people from the first look. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we have eyeballs and that's like part <laughs> of the process. But beauty standards do change. And I mean, like, I guess my hope is to be unaffected yeah. by those standards changing and to just be able to be comfortable. And like I always say, I like, I'm not a huge body positive person because I don't think it's really truly attainable. I think that's going again to try to say like, you can't ever be negative. You can't ever dislike something. Like my goal isn't to love my body. My goal is to accept my body. My goal is just to be neutral, to just say, cool, you're working today. That's amazing. That's cool. And if I have the day where it's like, you know, my stomach is in the way when I'm trying to put on pants and get mad at it for a minute, that's not a step backwards. That's just an acknowledgement of where my body is at that day. But the goal being that then that doesn't ruin the day. That just is an aspect that happened. And now I'm moving – now I put on a different pair of pants and I move on. Or I put on a dress because God knows that's more forgiving. Just move on. That's why I have a lot of tent dresses. I love tent dresses. I mean, just live in a tent (laughs) dress with pockets. Amen. And like – so it's just – that's – to me, the better goal rather than this, just because for me personally, I know being positive all the time is not going to happen. Ditto. And it just seems like too much of a leap. Like being positive feels like lying. Being neutral feels like a place I could get to. And then maybe from being neutral, I could get to a more positive space and find things I like. And like, sure, there are things I like, there are things I dislike. That's always how it's going to be. And like, I, I just wish that I could view everything about my body as morally neutral, you know? Right. Sort of the same as like gratitude when people are saying, you know, be a positive person. Well, just as as long as you take a minute to be grateful. Yeah. You don't have to be um, grateful for everything, just for the things that you're grateful for. And that doesn't mean that you can't be mad sometimes Mm -hmm. or frustrated or, you know, feel, feel like you're being put upon or, Mm -hmm. um, you yeah, know, being grateful doesn't mean accepting crumbs, right? So you're yeah. not like it's not like I'm so grateful just to be here. It's like, you know, you know, there's there's a, a balance. Right. I think it's also like food a lot. Like it's like if you think of food as morally neutral, like I'm not a bad person if I eat this plate of spaghetti or if I overeat one day, then like that's an in, such an incredibly freeing thing because then you can start to think about like what do you like what do you dislike what makes you feel good what makes you feel bad you know right yep i feel like i'm now at this point where i think i got to a place in my life and i think covid sort of fast forwarded this a bit i had pulled away from music theater a bit and hadn't been performing as much, but things, I definitely still was taking that fuck it attitude into auditions. And I had booked two shows right before COVID. Oh man. Um, which was heartbreaking. Cause it did feel like for the first time in a long time, like I was, I had gone in to these two auditions and literally had just been myself much like the symphony audition, much mm-hmm. like it was like, and to be honest, I'm pretty sure both of the roles that they were looking at me for, I don't have the contracts yet because COVID, um, but we're nicely saying these were going to be bigger people. Mm-hmm. They didn't actually flat out say that, but you could read the character. I was like, oh, so this is a fat girl. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's all right. I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> and I literally like have now gotten to a place where I'm like, I don't care if you want to see me for that. Great. I'm not again, I don't have the energy anymore to walk in and be like, damn it, you're going to think I'm not fat enough or I'm too fat or, you know, mm-hmm. like I just don't have yeah. the energy. I'm older. I also just don't care. I'm like, I, so I had really More like, power to, yeah. 
I'd found, at least in the audition room, in life, that's a different thing, but like <laughs> gone to this point in the audition room because you're going to think what you're going to think. And I, at this point, I don't have any way to change your mind. So whatever. And also I'd really worked to expand my life outside of the audition room. And what I mean by that is as artists, I think we get so hung up on um, defining ourselves and finding that worth in the great applause that we seek out so much. Mm-hmm. And while that is something that can be part of the driving force and part of who we are, I think it is solidly important and makes us better artists to make sure that we have other things in our life. Yeah. And so I had really worked on my current relationship and with myself, with my partner, um, my dogs, you know, my quality of life, where I wanted to be, not trying to like, oh God, I've got to stay in Manhattan. I've got to stay close. No, I've now moved to Connecticut. I'm like, guys. So when COVID happened, I saw a lot of peers desperate for that audience that they no longer had and really kind of falling down this hole of like, oh my God, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And some of them, you know, started their own podcasts. They started doing concerts. They started doing, you know, they were going to find it and God bless them. Like more power to them. I went through my own stuff of like, should I be doing that? Do I need to do that? And then I was like, you know, I don't want to. So I kept checking in with myself because I had people constantly being like, well, you should do this. Oh, I've been working with this company. You can do this concert in your house and you can get paid. And I was like, I don't, I don't actually want to. I'm good. I'm going to take more walks and I'm going to spend time with my dogs. And my husband was working a lot. So I also felt like inherently like my place became taking care of my dogs and Mm -hmm. making sure that like dinner was made and like very ridiculously standard things of just living. And I was so thankful that I had these other parts of my life because as much as I miss singing, obviously I really, you know, I missed having that connection with an audience, but I didn't need it to remember I existed. And so now I just think that like I carried that fuck it attitude into these auditions. I was heartbroken when COVID happened for that because I was like, oh, I was just, I was going in for Netflix stuff and getting really good feedback. I wasn't booking anything, but I was getting good feedback. And I was like, I'm making, I'm about to make it. (laughs) So in timely fashion, (laughs) COVID happens. And, um, but I do feel like it's given me even more time to embrace that fuck it kind of attitude. And I feel like when I go back to the stage, I've really tried to use this time And sort of the blessing of not being in rooms all the time with people Mm -hmm. with their own disordered thoughts and eating and projection and all of that to try to heal enough that hopefully when I get back in those rooms, I'm not affected as much at least. And then I'll, you know, then I keep working, but at, at least having that space gives you a little bit of your own time to really be with yourself and feel those uncomfortableness moments and just be like, okay, I got some work to do and I can't lean on other people's opinions. I mean, I could, I could go out of my way to find them, but why do that when it's so clear I I have stuff that I need to work on and totally I'm excited to go back and maybe now this will be the push that when I can finally be in a room with people again, I'll get those songs produced and (laughs) make something of them. Yeah, that'd be amazing. And I'm hoping that this also like changes a little bit more of the music because because of TikTok and because of social media, I think there really has been this really positive push of fatness just being more in people's faces and totally, I yeah. 100 support it. And I, I get so annoyed with these people being like, you're promoting obesity. You're pro-. I'm like, oh, shut <laughs> up. Nobody's promoting anything. You know what we're doing? We're saying we're here. We're just, we're just saying that everybody is here and deserves space. And that's And not- they're saying 
You're not, you don't deserve space. You shouldn't be here. And it's like, what it, what's going on in, with you, kid? You seem yeah. a little bit worse for wear than I do at this point. So <laughs> I like, I'm hopeful that that, although I don't love the idea of TikTok being the next artist platform, I don't, <laughs> I am not in agreement with that. I don't love that some people think that this, this is where we're headed. Um, what I do love about it is I feel like at least, there's there's more faces being seen yeah. rather than and more bodies being seen and hopefully that opens more doors what i'm i think the worst thing that can happen is that it then becomes this necessity of how many followers do you have how yeah. many videos do you have how many Absolutely. likes do you have which was already happening though to some degree i mean i would go to some auditions and they'd ask for my handles and which irritates the shit out of me um, I think on a positive note though, I do, hopefully it will show that like when we tell these stories, which is what art is all about, there's room for everyone's story. And those look different than just the ingenue, the leading man, yeah, the funny fat kid, the butt of the joke, you know, the old lady there's more than just that. Like look around your town and your neighbors and your social circles. And if you don't see more change, then you might need to do some digging yourself, but you yeah. should be seeing very different people from all walks of life. And that's what should be represented in art. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of representation, are there any specific representations like throughout your life that have been really influential to you? Um, well, definitely, like I said, watching Ricky Lake, uh, in the movie Hairspray, mm -hmm. um, was a big, that was the first time I'd ever seen a big person of younger age be any sort of, have any sort of romantic, yeah. um, anything and not be mm -hmm. just constant, but of the joke. So that was a huge yeah, turning point, I think for me, um, I also, I mean, I wouldn't say that this is like a real influence, but um, Little Red and Into the Woods was always mm. a huge dream role for me. Um, now she is the reason why I love her. Constant comments about how many buns she's eating and whatever. Yeah, but she, the girl, takes no shit, and she's yeah. one of like a large cast that actually survives everything. Mm -hmm. She's a fighter. She is hilarious. I think you talk to birds can be the funniest line in the entire show if done right. And anytime I saw the show <laughs> and it wasn't delivered properly, I got so annoyed because to me that was hilarious. And it's a so putting funny. I, I never thought of her as like a fat character until someone on this podcast few episodes ago mentioned it and I was like whoa like that kind of is but I just thought oh she's young and cute and so I wouldn't play her I would play Jack's mom you know there I mean the that's the hard thing because there were there were so many productions where she wasn't yeah at all it was just she was just the precocious kid mm -hmm. um but I don't think it serves as well I don't think it serves as well unless unless she is this like bigger feisty because there are comp there are little lines that yeah. are made about her size. And so yeah, I just thought it was now, of course, the role that I really wanted to play in that was the witch. So Oh, you'd be great. Totally. It'll happen. I'm obsessed with that musical. So The Baker's Wife, The Witch, and Little Red were always like, I'll take any of them, whatever one you're gonna get me. But again, you're right. If had my school done it, I would have been Jack's mom. Right. Same. <laughs> and uh I would have been thankful for it and it would have been fine. Me too. I love Jack's mom. I would love to play her in 40 years. <laughs> okay. So I have one final question for you before we wrap up. Okay. So the last thing that I always ask my guests is uh, what is something that people could do to combat fat phobia in the arts? So for music theater world, um, I think uh, already there's a little bit more being written, which is good. I think um, when right from a writer point, when you're writing these roles, not visually seeing the character 
as much. Like unless there is inherently some part of the story that has to be told through a visual, through – and if there is, question that. Through a body, you mean, or just yeah, the visual like, period? Th- like a visual look of a character. Yeah. Um, if And if there is, then question that and see if that's necessary. And if it is, then that's fine. That's yeah. totally part of the story. But I think too often um, – the descriptions of these characters have always had some sort of body type in it. And yeah. is that, I don't think it's necessary 90% of the time. So I think it starts at that level. Now writers will tell you that they have no control over a lot of that once they get to that golden level of actually being produced. And I totally have seen it and understand that, aka Nadia, aka like <laughs> I've yeah. seen it. So then it becomes now we need producers who also realize that the world is full of different people and that all of these people can have these experiences. Not only does the skinny girl fall in love, not only does the fat girl get rejected. Most of these stories, everybody has their version of. Yeah. Everyone at the root of it, we try, we want to pretend like we're so unique and so individual and like no one could possibly know what I'm going through. But when you break it down to the most basic level, like, yes, the details of your story are yours and yours alone and like absolutely hold on to those. They make you who you are. But at the basic level, everyone has experienced something like that, something yeah. in that world. We all fall in love. We all get rejected. We all have family issues of some sort or some level. We all have these complicated relationships with ourselves, with others. Like that doesn't exist only in one look. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. the more that we understand that and don't, think your audience is so stupid yeah they won't see that that they won't get that because in reality you've got an audience full of all those different types of all those different bodies and most of them if they're not in the business they're not necessarily looking for somebody who looks like them on the stage it doesn't go that deep most of the time unless you're a performer because then you are then you're like right but I play in this but As a person, you just subconsciously are like, oh, I know that feeling. Yeah. I know that I've been there. And that's what you want from your audience. And that is from everybody. That's not like all in these standard music theater shows, you don't have just the skinny girls in the audience going, oh, yeah, I wanted the guy to love me too. I remember that. No, all of us have felt that moment. Like. So why not have that openness on the stage? I promise it won't take away from your story. Like the goal is that we can represent everybody in the arts so that when an audience member is sitting there, it's not even a question of like, well, they're fat. So why are they being pursued? Yeah. That boggles my mind because it makes me feel like that's what producers go to. They're like, yeah. no one will ever believe. Oh, yeah. it's it, it boggles my mind. So I would say that's – Yeah. And then, I mean, like on the smallest level, it just takes, I think, all of us continuing to force ourselves in front of people. Um, I think it's literally a point of like don't hide. Don't – don't shrink. And it's, I know it's easier said than done because I myself am still working on it, but just be present. And you you force people to look, you force people to realize, talk to people, share your stories, be open so that people see other bodies as multidimensional as they are. Yes. Because the more that people connect with you 
as a person and get to know you as a person. Like if somebody is judging you for the way that you look and you, and it's not some random stranger on the street, but like Mm -hmm. someone that you're having to interact with, tell more of your story instead of letting that shrink you or letting that shut you up, be more open with that person. And you know, you're still, you're going to encounter a lot of assholes who aren't going to be open to it. Yeah. But you'll also encounter at least someone who now walks away instead of just seeing you as a shape or a body, but as a person and has somehow connected with you. And the more that we do that on the individual basis, the more it becomes normalized and the more people will write stories like that, which then bleeds down to more producers acknowledging that this is something people want to see and can relate to. Yeah. That's so great. So very last thing, do you have anything to plug or anything you want to leave us with? And where can we find you on social media? Oh gosh, the plug, plug, plug. Um, So (laughs) uh, right before COVID, I was working on a beautiful show called Split by Zoe Sarnak. Um, And really hopeful that that's going to be coming to fruition. There's been some talks and we've worked on a little thing. So I think that that will hopefully see a, um, a revival, well, an opening (laughs) when Mm -hmm. uh, things come around. Um, so I would just want to plug her. Zoe Sarnak's music is amazing. Um, she's beautiful writer. Uh, she writes stories, music, everything. It's, she's amazing. Um, so keep an ear out for her for sure. Um, I also continue to work with Joe Iconis. It's been a roller coaster of a ride, but we're, we're working on some stuff hopefully. And, um, so keep an ear out for that. Uh, I hope I'll continue to work with him when things open up in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I'm at, um, Katrina Rose rock at pretty much everything. Uh, that's definitely Instagram. I don't really do Twitter. I mean, I'm there, but I'm not there. (laughs) Um, Same with Facebook. Katrina Rose is my Facebook artist page, but I'm there, but I'm not there. Instagram is definitely the easiest way. And I've tried to be on TikTok. It's a struggle bus for me. I just watch (laughs) a lot of dog videos. Nothing wrong with that. (laughs) Um, So, And I don't have a niche of content. So I can't even say like, this is what you'll get if you watch me on TikTok. Um, (laughs) You don't don't know know what you're going to get, but that's part of the appeal. Never know what you're going to (laughs) get. Maybe some behind the voice stories. Maybe some what music theater didn't teach me um, stuff. It's, It's always like a mixed bag, grab bag. I haven't really found what anyone really cares about, but I do post some singing sometimes. And that's Katrina Rose Rock as well. Amazing. Thank you so, so much for doing this. It's been so awesome talking to you. Thank you for bearing your soul. So much. I'm sorry I talked so long. Oh, no, it was great. It was wonderful. <laughs> Amazing. That was, a, that was an awesome way to spend my Sunday night. And I hope if you're listening, you're having a you, you enjoyed spending your night with us. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, thank you again. All the best, you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to season one of More Than Tracy Turnblad. If you've been enjoying this podcast and you want to support it for season two, you can donate to our GoFundMe at the link in the episode description. You can also find us on social media. I'd love to hear from you at More Than Tracy T on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And of course, you can always go to our website, morethantracyturnblad.com to find out more. We'll be back sometime in mid to late August. More official dates will drop on the social medias. So make sure you are following us there and also subscribe on whatever podcast streaming platform you're listening to so you can be notified when we're back. It's been amazing, you guys. Catch you in season two.